let's go ahead and get our two gardens found again. Genesis chapter 3 and Mark chapter 14. I need you to mark those two specific locations. Our tale from last week continues as we're looking at these two gardens separated by a few thousand years but linked together in the plot of God's redemption plan. And so we've been introduced to the Garden of Eden and we saw how God planted and then placed Adam and Eve in it. We saw the true paradise that it really was. I mean, there has been nothing on the face of this earth that could match it in its beauty and in its splendor and in its perfection and how it showed from the very beginning God's favor and love towards humanity and how man enjoyed that unbroken, perfect fellowship with God as he walked with him and conversed with him daily in the garden. And then we were introduced to the Garden of Gethsemane which we saw was no paradise. By the time we get to this point in history, things look drastically different between God and man. They no longer walk together in perfect harmony and fellowship like they did in Eden. Instead, men are seizing the Son of God. They come against Him with clubs and whips and torches. They arrest Him and they drag Him off to what will eventually be his death on the cross, things are drastically different between these two scenes. And in the midst of that, we laid the foundation upon which this storyline is going to unfold. So let's go back to Eden and let's pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. God's word reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before this interaction with the serpent, who we know to have been filled by Satan, took place. And that detail, for all purposes, doesn't particularly matter. What is known is that apparently on what was just another normal day in paradise with Eve minding her own business, the serpent strikes up a conversation with her. Now, considering that point... I want to give you my title, which is this, Something's Not Right. Tell somebody beside you, I got a bad feeling. I got a bad feeling. It might have been that Taco Bell I stopped and got before we got here. I don't know, but either way, I got a bad feeling about where this is going. This, my friends, is not a normal situation. Something's not right in Eden. Snakes, by the way, should not be talking. Now that being said, 
Some people have attempted to justify Eve's lack of reaction when it came to the snake talking to her because it's almost as if to her this isn't even out of place. Like you would think she would be shocked. Like ladies, I'm going to be honest, and, and you guys, let's be honest guys, if a snake come underneath that door right over there, what's the vast majority of your reaction going to be? You're going out the opposite door. You're not, you're not going hey, to say if he wants to chat about his day or anything like that. They're not going to have a conversation with a serpent if it comes slithering. But Eve, Eve just kind of acts like it's just another day. So some people have attempted to justify her reaction by saying, well, maybe it was just common that other animals in the garden talked back then. But we have no viable reason to believe that. There would be no true purpose behind God giving animals that ability. So Eve's reaction is kind of puzzling to me. This is not normal. Something's not right. This is, this is, snakes don't walk up and start talking to people. What she should have done is she should have grabbed Adam's gardening hoe and chopped that sucker's head off the moment that it said hello to her. If she was in her right mind. That's what I would have done. I'm sorry. Like I'm not, I can do snakes somewhat. What I will not tolerate is a spider. I can handle a snake a little bit. Either way, we're not trying to be friends. So if he enters my personal space, I will take fatal action to end his life, which is exactly, in my personal opinion, what Eve should have done this instance in the garden. The moment this joker slithered up or walked up or whatever and started speaking to her, she said, Adam, let me borrow that hoe you got there for a second. I got to take care of something. Shellac! But she entertains the conversation. She's talking with the serpent. From the very beginning, we can read between the lines and see that he does not have her best interest in mind. Press pause on that. Let's peek into Gethsemane for a second. Mark chapter 14. Let's go over to Mark 14 for a second. Verse 32 says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch, or in other words, pray along with me. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. So in Eden, Eve is talking to a snake. In Gethsemane, Christ is talking to his father. But once again, something doesn't seem right. Jesus is in a state of emotional stress and strain, unlike anything we've ever seen in him before. This is the one who, in the midst of the storm, as the disciples are wigging out over the boat breaking up and falling apart, fearing that they're going to drown, shake Jesus up out of a sleep and say, Lord, do you not care that we're going to die in this storm? And he calmly walks out on the front deck and says, Oh, you have little faith. Peace be still and calms the entire storm. And yet, here in the garden, 
Jesus is reacting with such great stress and strain and duress that he's sweating drops of blood. We've never seen him react like this before. We've never seen this kind of emotion come out of Christ over a specific event in his life. I mean, he's the savior of the world. He's God over all creation. He's, he's cool, calm, and collected, right? Like this is uncharacteristic of Jesus. Something can't be right. Something's shaking down. And it doesn't appear to be anything good. In Eden and Gethsemane, we're getting this feeling that something's not right. That being said, I believe this moment is about to be very teachable for us. The way that Adam and Eve handle things compared to Jesus in like situations is vastly different. So I want to show you a few things that this unlocks for our own personal understanding. The first of which I want to point out is this, is that temptation is an inevitable reality. Let me put this out here. When things don't seem right, and you know what I mean by that? All of us can, can relate to specific moments or specific spaces where we find ourselves in a certain circumstance or situation or surrounded by a specific scene. And we know that once we enter into that place, something's not right about me being here. Something's not right about this moment that I have somehow, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have found myself in. Something's not right about this place. When you find yourself in those moments, temptation is usually present in that place with you. So let's look at Eden again. Back in Eden, Eve is in a conversation with the serpent, and from the beginning, the interaction is sour. The serpent questions the validity of what God has spoken, which from the beginning should have been red flags and sirens all over the place for Eve in this interaction with the serpent. The moment that he began to question the validity of what God had spoken to her should have thrown her into a cautious state moving forward, as in, I don't know if this is a conversation that I should be entertaining or not. Because when you lead into this with questioning the validity of what God has promised and spoken to me, that person, that thing, that forked tongue, whatever it is, I promise you does not have your best interest in mind moving forward. And so... The question arises, why did Eve continue to entertain the conversation? Because here's the thing about questioning the validity of God's word. To attack God's word is to attack God's character. And let me give you a little hint on what the devil wants to do, particularly in Eve's life, but also in your life as well. He wants to instill doubt in her heart concerning mainly God's love. Never mind the fact that God had given them life in paradise. They had no lack. They did not miss out on one single good thing. God had given them everything to be enjoyed for a life of paradise and perfection. And the devil slinks into the garden and wants to instill immediately in Eve's heart a questioning of whether or not God really loves them. And it's the first thing he'll attack in your life as well. If he can instill doubt in your heart over the reality or the truth of whether or not God truly does love you, he can send you down a dark path that you may never find yourself out of. 
And so once that's accomplished, once he accomplishes that, he, he, he drops that into Eve's heart. Once he accomplishes that, he tempts Eve with the one thing that God had commanded them not to do, which was what? To take the fruit. All of this is yours. You can enjoy it. You can have whatever you want. Just stay away from this specific thing. And once the devil is able to instill doubt in Eve's heart over whether or not God truly loves them, he's then able to tempt her with something that otherwise she may have never done. That's why he wants to attack God's character. Because if he can get you to attack God's character, you are then that much more susceptible to overstepping God's word. And so he begins to tempt Eve with the one thing that God had commanded them not to do, which was to take the fruit. What's the big deal? Come on, Eve. It ain't that big a thing. Is there really going to be a consequence? Well, God said we would die. You're not going to surely die. There's no consequence. He actually flips it on his head. You see what he does? He, he removes the consequence, and he tries to add benefit. You'll not surely die. God just knows you'll become like him. The devil always wants to try and hide the consequences of your actions and what they will produce and set in front of you instead what you think would be a benefit to a better life. And so he pulls this bait and switch trick with Eve. You're not surely going to die. God just knows you'll be like him. So come on, just do it. Take that bite. Take that fruit. It's really not that big. It's a victimless crime. It's really not that big a deal. And so she begins to look at it and she says, that, well, it does kind of look good for food. It is kind of appealing to the eyes. It does look like it could increase knowledge or wisdom or power. Temptation will always appeal on two fronts. Physiological, that's your flesh. Psychological, that's your mind. It's always a twofold temptation with the devil. He will appeal to your flesh and he will appeal to your mind. That looks pretty good to me. Stomach's kind of growling for that a little bit. And it does look like it would benefit. Don't you think, Adam? I mean, we could be like God. Infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, to know good and evil. Which, let me ask you, it's a complete side note. If all you have ever known is good, why would you care to know evil? Come on, Eve. Come on, Adam. But look at this. People tend to think that temptation comes as a byproduct of sin. But temptation was present before sin ever even entered in. At this point, Eve is locked in on the fruit. She's staring at it. She's thinking on it. She's all but salivating over it. Now let's go back to Gethsemane. Jesus has carried some of his disciples with him, and he's asked that they pray with him. Why? Because he knows the horrors that are approaching he knows that he will be betrayed. He knows that he's going to be abandoned by his closest friends. He knows he's going to be brutally beaten, that he's going to be crucified, that on the cross he will actually be forsaken by the Father as he becomes the sin of the entire world. God's full cup of wrath is being filled up in order to be taken down by Jesus. And one of the reasons why he is agonizing in prayer is because of temptation. It's present in this garden as well. And even though we don't see the devil physically manifested here, I assure you he's there and he's tempting the humanity side of Jesus. 
And I'm going to show you how. Where he tempted Eve to take the fruit, he's tempting Jesus to pass the cup. In other words, his temptation with Eve is take that fruit. You know you want to. You know it's going to be better for you. You know that God's really withholding, right? You know there are things that, that you could experience that are far better than what he has allowed you to up until this point if you will just take that fruit. Well, Jesus has got a different tone, though. Why? Because you can't tempt Jesus with evil. James 1.13 says, God himself cannot be tempted by evil. So it's not an evil temptation that he's setting in front of Jesus. It has a different flavor. His temptation before Christ is, come on, Jesus, you know you don't want to do this. You know it's going to be horrid. You know even if you go through with this, they are still not going to love you. You know even if you go through with this, they're still going to reject you. They're still going to resent you. Just forget about them. They're not worth it. This is not going to be worth it whatsoever. Take that cup that the Father's fixing the hand down for you and pass on it. Listen, I think, I think we got the storyline kind of mixed up over the years. A lot of times we want to portray it as, as if darkness celebrated the fact that Jesus was crucified. I don't think that was the case whatsoever. The more I read and the more I study and the more I look at Jesus headed to the cross, the more I see the devil trying to prevent it. Because why would he want Christ to go to the cross knowing that his death would ultimately be the salvation of all those who would call upon his name? He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross because he knows that means victory. Why do you think the beatings were so severe? Yes, it's a part of God's wrath and God's judgment, I promise you. But at the same time, it's the devil doing whatever he can to try and get Jesus to quit, to lay down and not go through with it. Why? Because then we would be hopelessly lost in our sin. There would be no chance at salvation. So in the garden, he's tempting on Jesus, you don't want to do this. You're not worth it. And we know the devil wasn't scared to tempt Jesus because he'd already done so once before in his life. Temptation doesn't care who you are or where you're at or what your intentions are. All the devil cares about is getting you to stare at something that you shouldn't be looking at, thinking on something that you shouldn't be dwelling on, and biting into something that you never should have consumed. Eve's temptation is to take the fruit. Jesus' temptation is to pass on the cup. Now you got to see the second part of this. And that's the reality that our actions reveal our heart. If you want to know someone's heart, watch how they act more than listening to what they say. And I say that because people can lie. People can mask their motives of their heart with their mouth. It can be very difficult to discern the true intentions of someone's heart by trying to filter their words because we're deceptive by nature. And so if you really want to see the true intentions of someone's heart, take a step back and watch their actions. Watch what they do. Why? Because the actions we take or the actions that we don't take are the real tale of what's in our hearts. And so if we go back in Eden, we see this unfold as well. The devil has tempted Eve. He's brought her to the very edge of choice, but listen to me. He can't make it for her. He's done all that he can within his own power to bring her right to the edge of making the choice that she should not make, but he cannot make that choice for her. That serpent did not go over there and grab that fruit off the tree step on Eve's foot to make her scream and then shove it in her mouth. 
doesn't work like that. But he can bring you as close as he possibly can. And he gets Eve to that point where she's right on the edge of making the choice to bite into the temptation that he has laid in front of her. And what does she do? She does exactly that. After seeing the tree, after taking a look at the fruit, she takes the bite. And her actions reveal her heart. At this moment, deep down inside, Eve believes God to be withholding from her. At this moment, deep down inside, Eve prioritizes herself over anything and anybody else. At this particular moment in time, deep down inside, Eve, I think in the most tragic of truths, declares independence from God. I don't need you. I can handle this myself. If I had the opportunity to be God for myself, I believe I could do it better. And that's the most tragic part of man's rebellion, I think, against God, is our declaration of independence from him. Us looking back at the one who created us and say, we no longer need your hand. Adam and Eve eating this fruit reveals their self-gratification. It looked good, felt good, it smelled good. We desired it, so we took it. In that moment, it no longer mattered what God had said or what God had vowed as judgment. He had told them, the day that you surely take of this fruit, you will die. But in that moment, none of that mattered. It didn't matter anymore in that moment that God had said, you can enjoy any and every part of this that you want to. It didn't matter that he had given them every good thing that they could have ever desired. It didn't matter that their judgment was going to be death. It only mattered what they desired in that moment. It only mattered that they thought something better was there to gain. A better life, a greater knowledge, infinite wisdom or power, becoming like God. And listen to me, this is exactly how it feels when we are about to enter into sin. Let me, let me show you how you can avoid sin, believe it or not. Nobody's, nobody's shoving temptation into your mouth. We, just like Eve, when we find ourselves in these moments, make the conscious choice ourselves to reach out and grab the fruit and take a bite out of it. Nobody forces you. The devil does not force you to do that. And so I, I want to give you some help if I can, of how you can identify when you are very, very close to entering into sin and just how dangerous it can be because it looks exactly what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's an opportunity for self-gratification where we see by desire what looks good, what feels good, and what seems to us as a better offer than what we have, and we get so pulled into that moment that it no longer matters to us what God has said or what the consequences will be. You feel me? Don't look at me all holy and righteous because I know you've been there just like I have. When you get to that moment, you get to the edge of that temptation, whatever it may be that you are tempted with on a regular basis, you know what it is. You know what your weaknesses are. Every single time you get to that point where you're right on the edge of it, if you've looked at it long enough, you've entertained it long enough within your mind, eventually you get to a point where you decide, I'm going to take that bite. And in that moment, every other thing has flown out of your mind. All the promises of God are gone. 
All the goodness of God is gone. All the grace of God is gone. The love of God is gone. The voice of God is absolutely tuned out in that moment. The Spirit of God inside of you has been waving red flags, ringing bells and whistles, grabbing you by your shirt, trying to yank you away from it, and you have fought it off, and at that moment, you can't even hear His voice anymore. You don't care about what the consequences may be. Self-gratification takes over, and we fall headlong into something that God has clearly told us to stay away from. And in one moment of self-gratification, an effect was released that would ripple through eternity. Man no longer saw God as God. He wanted more. He wanted to be God himself. So he took that bet. And everything changed from that moment on. Let's go back to Gethsemane. As we get back to that garden, we find something similar looks to be unfolding. Jesus is being tempted to pass the cup to not go through with the plan. Three times, as a matter of fact, in the text, we see him plead with his father for the cup to be removed if possible. Yet he knows what must be done. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus here in Gethsemane is faced with a choice. But if you go back and look in the passage as he's praying and he's pleading with his father, in verse 36, he said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is faced with a choice, but his choice is much different than Adam and Eve's. Jesus' response to the choice that is set before him is not what I will, but what you will. Eden shows us man's self-gratification. Gethsemane shows us Jesus' self-denial. That's how vastly different he is from us. Where we choose to self-gratify and indulge in the desires of our flesh, Jesus and his humanity face the same temptations and desires that we face even now today, yet he was able to look at them and say, I'm not going to choose that. I will instead choose the will of my Father. And in Christ's moment, it, it didn't matter what he wanted. For him, it, it didn't matter what was easier. For him, it doesn't matter the pain or the suffering or the agony or the loneliness that he's going to face. It only matters what God wills, which is the salvation of his own creation. Jesus resists temptation. And by his action, just like the actions of Adam and Eve revealed the truth of what was in their heart, Christ's actions reveal the truth of what is in his heart as he's in the midst of this garden and how it once again reveals that his heart towards man is a heart that loves eternally, is one that is full of grace and mercy and compassion, a heart that bleeds for relationship and closeness that he created for us to share in with him. It's a heart ready to endure hell on earth so that we can escape hell for eternity. Man, can we just take a moment and marvel with gratitude that Jesus resisted the temptation to evade the cross and chose instead to endure the cross so that he could absorb the just wrath of God that we should have taken down upon Upon our sins so that we in turn could then be saved and credited with his righteousness 
the magnitude of what Jesus does in this moment cannot be overstated. Just like Eve's bite of that fruit forever changed eternal history, Christ's submission to his Father's will and resistance of temptation redirected all of eternal history. So let me ask you, what are your recent actions revealed about your heart? What do the actions of your life testify to? If we were to take a look inside, what would we find? What does Christ find in the midst of what's in your heart? Because that's what our actions will reveal. I don't know about you guys, but as this tale continues to unfold, I found a new appreciation day in and day out for the reality that Christ chose to resist passing the cup to instead take the cup so that salvation could become a very real reality for us. How easy would it have been for him to look ahead, fully God and fully man, and know, I'll take this cup, and there will still be scores and scores and scores of people who will reject my name. There will still be scores and scores and scores of people who will mock me, who will hate me, who will resent and reject me, even though time and time again I show my love and I show my grace and I show my mercy and I show my desire to have a relationship with me, they are not going to have anything to do with me and he still went through with it. That's amazing. That, my friends, is amazing grace. And it shows us that at the depths of Christ's heart, always, always, has been his eternal love for those of us that are his creation. Each and every one of you are eternally loved by Jesus, whether you choose to accept that or not. That's a love that I can't put into words. That's a, word, that's a love that I cannot stand here and adequately describe to you. It's one that you just have to come to know and believe that that is just indeed how much he cares for your soul. One last thing I'm going to show you. We'll find ourselves in these situations where something's just not right. There's always action or choice that's going to accompany that. And the reality is, is that those things go a lot deeper than you think. That action, that choice in the midst of that temptation, it goes a lot deeper than you think. What was the result that came from the choice of Adam and Eve taking the fruit. Well, if you go back and look in Eden, check it out. Let's see it in the text. Don't take my word for it. It says in verse 7 that after they took the fruit, it says, then the eyes of both were open. So we see transformation actually right here. Temptation, if you fall into it, will transform you. But not for the best, for the worst, actually. So it says that the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now, that's vastly different from when we saw them in chapter 2, where it talks about how God created man and woman. He placed them in the garden, 
and they knew not their nakedness. In other words, they were naked and not ashamed. And yet sin has entered in, and now their knowledge and what their eyes have been opened up to is something that's way worse. And it says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So it goes a lot deeper than what you think, and it did so for Adam and Eve in the sense that the end result was shame. They sewed fig leaves together in an attempt to cover up, right? To cover up the sin that they had entered into, to cover up something that they should have never felt. Shame was an emotion. Shame was a feeling that God never intended for man to experience. And so after they fall into that, they sew these fig leaves together. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they have felt something that they never should have felt. And the moment that we enter into a moment of shame or guilt or embarrassment after doing something that we know that we should not have done, our default reaction to this day is to do what? To cover it up to try and hide it, to sweep it underneath the rug somewhere. You've done this since childhood, right? You're, you're running around the house, and your parents told you not to run around the house, right? How many times? 15 to 25 to 30, and you're running through the house, and what happens? You got your socks on, you hit the hardwood floor, they fly out from under you, you hit the, the lamp stand, and you break the lamp. And what's the first thing that you do? Well, if you got a sibling, you start thinking of some way to frame it up on them, just in case you can't get it covered up. The first thing you do, though, is you try and cover it up. You go and get the broom, you try and replace the bulb, you take the lamp outside and throw it in the woods and just hope that for some reason your parents are going to forget that there was ever a lamp there. You try and cover it up. Where do you think that default reaction comes from? It comes from your great, 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 grandmama and granddaddy in the garden. They sinned, they entered into something that God told them not to do. And not knowing how to handle their shame, they went and got some leaves and started sewing and covered up their nakedness because they felt something they should have never felt because they did something they should have never done. It goes way deeper than what they ever thought. They thought they were going to be like God. Instead, they're now hiding from God. For the first time ever, man is hiding from the presence of God. Well, we got to look at Gethsemane too because I want to, I want to show you this and I, and I hope it impacts you in a powerful way. Nobody likes to sin, or at least we shouldn't, especially those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Sin's not cool. Don't do that stuff. Just say no to sin. Don't do that. Should make new shirts. Just say no to drugs. Right, we're going to swap it up. Just say no to sin. Don't do that. Gethsemane. Let's go back and look. Gethsemane, at the beginning of the passage that we read, Tonight, Jesus says something that identifies how sin has impacted him. In verse 34, he says to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. See, it goes a lot deeper than you think, because for you it causes shame. But for Jesus, it causes sorrow. Jesus was sorrowful in Gethsemane, because he takes a look at his beautiful creation, one that he had formed in what he calls in Ephesians, defining us in his word, as something that was masterful. 
something that was created just as it should have been, something that he defined in Eden as being very good. And he looks at what sin has done, and he looks at what it's come to, and it should have never came to that. We should have never gotten to this point. None of this should have ever unfolded. None of this should have ever happened. Man should have never done what he did. And Jesus is sorrowful even unto death. Why? Because his heart is broken over the fact that man has stepped into something that he never desired him to step into. And I think if we would grasp how deeply it grieves the heart of God when we step into sin, maybe we wouldn't flirt with it quite so often. Maybe we'd be a little bit more passionate about resisting a temptation and fleeing from the devil when he shows up in our lives instead of entertaining conversations with him. Instead of dwelling a little bit too long on something that we should have never dwelled on in our minds. If we would really begin to, to soak in the reality that Jesus here, even knowing what he's going to face and how horrid the cross is going to be and how that's the last thing that he wants to have to endure before that states that he is sorrowful unto death. Why? Because he looks at what sin has done and corruption to his most perfect, very good creation and it pains his heart. He's broken over it. And it goes a lot deeper than we think. Our decisions, our choices, our actions is so much more than the impact that it has upon you. It ripples. That day in the Garden of Eden, you know, something wasn't right, which led to things going horribly wrong. Man is in a mess. Sin has sunk in. So what now? What now? What is man going to do? What is God going to do? How is this situation going to be undone? Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for his glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.